Christmas Day and Brett, thank you. There's part of me that wants to go sit down and to do that medley again. I loved that. It is Christmas Day. It is the time that I am supposed to talk about shepherds and wise men and angels and the star and a barn and finally a baby. But that's Matthew and Mark. And today Luke is going to be, or not Luke, but John is going to be our guide. Matthew and Luke focus more on the, on the angels and star and the wise men. But John takes what has been called more of a cosmic view of the Christmas story. And so uh, John starts off his gospel, and you know it's going to be big when he starts off with in the beginning, which is obviously a callback to Genesis 1. And so this is known as the prologue of John, verses 1 through 18. And there's several theological concepts here, and I know it's Christmas Day, but we're going to get a little bit deep. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about is the Trinity. Now, we don't have three gods. As any good Jew would, would proclaim to us here, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, right? We have one God. We have one God in three persons. And this is something that we kind of take for granted. When believers are baptized, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a core teaching of our faith. I teach it to the youth group kids this way. I say, when you're talking about the Trinity, when you're talking about God, one plus one plus one equals one, right? Um, many, of the early, many of the creeds of the early church focus on this concept, and the writings of John are one of the sources that we go to to lead us into this truth. And we see this right at the beginning of the Gospel of John. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I had a whole section about the word Word. It's, it's the logos that I had to take out for time, but that is an awesome, beautiful word. But John makes it clear that this word was with God and this word was God. And so we have God the Father and then we have another person who is with God the Father and he, and he is God, but he is distinct from God the Father. And John is going to call him the Word. And we know that the Word is Jesus. And then it's like John wants to bracket this prologue with this idea of a Trinitarian God, of God in three persons. And so he starts off in John 1.1 with this thought. And then in 18, he's going to close with this thought as well. He's going to say, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, right? And is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so this Son, this Word, this this Logos, this Jesus, okay? He has seen God, and he is in community with God, and he is God. Jesus is fully God, period, full stop. So let's move on from, from the Trinity, and we're going get, to get into something that's almost as difficult, the incarnation of Christ. So John is going to um, kind of hone in on this in verse 14 when he says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. If you watch the video, the word that the cartoonist puts in on the video there is tabernacle, which is actually, which is actually a accurate word. It's the same word in the Greek that's used to describe the tent that the Jews carried through 
their 40 years in the wilderness where they met with the presence of God in the tent, that, that this word, that this Jesus, that this part of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. So I feel like that the humanity of Jesus can be demonstrated by the fact that he lived his earthly life between two cries. Doug pointed out on Wednesday night that there's a Christmas carol that we sing that has something about the cattle or lowing and then, and then Jesus doesn't cry. And Doug pointed out, and I agree, that Jesus as a fully human baby would have cried. And then when Christ is upon the cross, one of the last verbs that he does is that he gives his spirit up. But right before then, he cries out. I think we can learn something about the humanity of Jesus by the fact that he lives his earthly life between two cries. And so the early church struggled with, what does Christmas really mean? So there was a group of Gnostics that, that kind of made their way into the church, and they brought some of their beliefs with them. And one of the things that the Gnostics believed was that the flesh was inherently bad, that there was nothing redeemable or good about the flesh, but that the spirit was good. And so their argument then, with their background, was, well, Jesus wasn't really flesh. He was kind of a ghost, he was kind of a spirit, he was kind of an angel, he kind of floated around, and he was in the appearance of man, but he wasn't really man. And in 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John is going to take this on. And he proclaims that if any spirit says Jesus wasn't in the flesh, that spirit is from the Antichrist. The leaders of the early church were the first followers of Christ. And they knew firsthand the humanity of Jesus. They saw Jesus fatigue. They heard him sneeze. They shared meals with Jesus. They saw Jesus stub his toe as he walked along the road. They knew what sounds he made as he slept. John knew the very sound of the heartbeat of Jesus as he reclined against him. And so we're left with this tension. How do we describe this Jesus? Is he man or is he God? And the answer is yes. Theologians have come up with a phrase to try to describe this. And what they've landed on is the hypostatic union. Jesus is God. He was always with God. He existed with God the Father and with God the Spirit before time. Jesus is not a created being. He's fully God, period. But he also took on flesh, and he became fully man. He's not a hybrid. He's not a mix. He's not a demigod, as the Greeks would describe Hercules in some of their myth. He's fully man, and he's fully God. And still 2,000 years after this fact, I find myself really comfortable with the deity of Christ. It is the humanity of Christ that terrifies me. And so Paul tries to explain this. And in Philippians 2, he's going to write a poem. And near the center of the poem, he's going to describe the incarnation of Christ this way. He says, Jesus empties himself to take on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of man. And so we can go to Hebrews and Romans both to get a similar teaching. But it's this idea that Jesus doesn't stop being God. But one way to conceptualize this is that Jesus seems to set aside his power and his privilege 
of God so that he can become man. And I know that right now that some of you are like, whoa, wait a minute. What about the miracles? Jesus could heal the sick. He could raise the dead. He could walk upon the water. What do you mean he set aside his privilege and power of being God to live as man? And I think one way for us to think about this that's helpful is that there were prophets and that there were men of God prior to the earth ministry of Jesus that through dependence upon God and through fellowship with God could heal the sick and could raise the dead. And then after the earthly ministry of Jesus, there were apostles and followers of Jesus who could heal the sick and who could raise the dead. And Jesus tells them, you'll do greater things than what you've seen me do. And so one way for us to think about this is Jesus voluntarily gives away his own privilege and his own power as God and chooses to live completely dependent upon God with the unlimited anointing of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus lived just like men of God did before him and after him, setting aside his own privilege as God and lived dependent upon God the Father. One way, one time that we know Christ explicitly gives up some of his privilege as God is, as Christians, we believe God knows all things. And yet they come to Jesus and they say, when are you coming back? And Jesus says, only God the Father knows. Jesus voluntarily limited his knowledge of his second coming. So, my question is why? Why would Jesus empty himself of, of his glory and his privilege and his power of God to live as man? Well, now we have to talk about covenants. This is a pop quiz. You are all getting a grade. The first question is the easiest. There's some in the middle that are easy. A couple of them are kind of hard. We're going to talk about covenants. Now, we are in a Church of Christ building with Church of Christ people and if you go back in the history of our movement, we are big on understanding the difference between covenants. So what covenant do we live under as Christians? The new covenant, right? The covenant of Christ. And, uh, and uh, our primary text that we live under is the New Testament, right? Okay, so we're going to work backwards from there. What's the covenant that came before that one? What's that? The first covenant. Okay, depends on which one you're talking about. Right? Uh, the one that came before that was kind of a tricky one. It's the covenant of David. It's when, it's when God makes a promise to David that the scepter is never going to leave his family lineage, which actually leads to the covenant that we live under, which is Christ. Okay, this is kind of an easy one. What's the covenant that came before that one that's like the big covenant? The Mosaic covenant, right? The covenant of the law. All right? What's the covenant that came before that one? I'm going to give you a hint. If you go count the stars, you probably can figure it out. Abraham. The, and, and that's a big one. I mean, they slaughter animals, and they split them in half, and there's a vision. I mean, promises are made. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. Okay? That's an important one. Another tricky one. What's the covenant that came before that one? It's in Genesis 9. I'm just going to give it away. All right? The covenant of Noah. All right? One more covenant. What's the covenant that came before that one? Adam, right? Um, if, if, if you read commentaries, it's called the covenant of life. It's called the covenant of works. Um, the word covenant is not used in that section of the narrative, but in Hosea 6, God is going to compare it to a covenant. And so the covenant with Adam and Eve goes something 
like this. Okay? God says, Adam, I'm going to give you this position and this place, and you're going to walk in fellowship with me, and you're going to subdue and rule the earth, and if you obey me, you will flourish and live. But if you seek to dethrone me by becoming like me by eating of this tree of knowledge, then a curse will fall upon you, and sin is going to enter the earth, and, get, and you're going to lose your position of reigning over the earth, and, and you're going to lose fellowship with me, and you're going to leave this place, and eventually, because of sin, you're going to die. And we all know the story. Adam breaks the covenant. He eats of the tree. He says, God, you don't get to decide what's right and what's wrong. I get to decide. And the covenant is broken. And now God's deepest desire is to restore that covenant, to save all of mankind, to restore all of creation and everything else. And so God is looking for a man to keep this covenant with. Now, one way for us to think about this is in Galatians 4, Paul is going to write in verse 4, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Okay, so he's talking about the Mosaic law there. So just conceptualize it this way. Okay, if Jesus only kept the covenant of the law of Moses, would that do anything for me and you? I don't think there's that many Jews in uh, Lee County. I would say no. That, that if that's the only covenant that Jesus came to fulfill, that that's the only people that it applies to. So it wouldn't apply to you and to me. That only applied to Israel. But Adam is us. Adam does apply to us. We are in the covenant of Adam. And when Adam sins, he turned his, his position as reigning over the earth, as subduing the earth, as having dominion over the earth, Okay, he turns that over to Satan. Satan was the head of the rebellion against God. And when Adam and Eve are seduced by Satan, they join him and they hand this place of privilege. They hand it over to Satan, who is in rebellion against God. It's why in the New Testament, Satan is called the prince of the air and the small g, God of this age. Adam joins this rebellion of Satan against God, and the, and the earth and Adam fall under a curse. And God wants to undo this curse. He wants to restore mankind. He wants to restore everything that was lost in the uh, fall of man. But to do this, God needs a man as a partner. Adam's very name in Hebrew, Adam, just means earthling or man. And no man has been worthy of fulfilling the covenant. I haven't, and you haven't. And that is why Jesus had to become a man. To fulfill the covenant of Adam with God, Jesus had to do this as man and not as deity. And so twice Paul is going to make this point. For God to set all things right, he needs a man to do it. And Adam failed, and Jesus is Adam 2.0. He's going to make this point in Romans 5, and he's going to make this in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to be reading 21 and uh, 22. Okay, So Paul writes, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also through a man. 
And then in 22, he tells us exactly who the two men are. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus is the final Adam. He is the fulfillment of man. Thomas Goodwin, a theologian, wrote 600 years back. He says, Paul speaks of Adam and Christ as if there had never been anyone else in the world. For these two men have all the rest of us hanging from their belts. I don't know exactly what that phrase means, but I know what he's saying. That um, all of us, our destiny and our fate hinges on these two men, Adam and Christ. And that Christ is the ultimate Adam. He's the ultimate man. He teaches us what it means to be fully human and to live a perfectly human life. A early church father wrote a popular poem that um, compared the disobedience of Adam as occasioned by a tree to the obedience of Christ upon a tree. In John 19, as Jesus is being tortured and they put the crown of thorns upon Jesus and the the, uh, purple robe, Pilate announces, Behold the man. This is a callback to Genesis 3 when God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. When Jesus is resurrected and Mary's talking to Jesus, she mistakes him for the gardener. Adam was a gardener. The New Testament is rife with these illustrations about how Jesus is the fulfillment of Adam. And Jesus did everything right where Adam failed. And so now I want to close in an unlikely place. I want to go to the temptation in the desert. But right before then, we get a great Trinitarian moment. Jesus is baptized, and we get the voice of God the Father, we get the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove, and then we have God the Son standing in the water in obedience to his Father. And then it says he's led, or he's drug out into the wilderness. And he goes there, and he fasts, for 40 days. And then in verse 3, Satan is going to show up. And Satan says, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan is a fallen angel. As a created being, would have known Jesus in the throne room. Would have known Jesus in all of his power, and all of, of his glory. And when he goes out into the wilderness, he sees a bedraggled Jewish artisan who's been fasting for 40 days and he looks at him and says Jesus I I know you and you don't look like you and Satan is trying to call him out of his humanity and he says if you really are the son of God tell these stones to become bread Satan is calling on Jesus to fight him as God it is the battle that Satan wants and Jesus is going to answer him he says it's written And listen to the first word. He says, man. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, I'm doing this as a man. And you defeated a man in a garden by twisting the words of God and getting that man to disobey God by eating something that God has said no to. And Jesus says, as a man, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be completely dependent upon God. You're not going to get me to eat something that God has said no to. And he says, no. Jesus stands up where Adam fell down. 
And so now, um, the devil takes him to the holy city. And they go to the highest point of the temple. And this is an important place. This is a place where uh, they blew the ram's horn to call the people together. And Satan says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan tempts Jesus yet again. If you really are the Son of God, then use your privilege and cheat death. You're the Son of God. You don't have to go through with this. But Jesus says, it is written, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Jesus says, I'm not going to cheat death. I'm a man. Men die. I'll face it like a man. And I'm not going to put the Lord my God to the test when it comes to death. Your body is not your own. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We typically quote that verse to talk about sexual purity. But it applies to all of life. Okay, We shouldn't take chances. We shouldn't be flippant with our lives. When somebody says yes to Jesus, when we baptize them, we immerse them in the water because God gets it all. That's why we don't sprinkle. Church, wear your seatbelt. Exercise. Take care of your health. Your body belongs to God. And as men, we're not allowed to be flippant with our lives. Life is precious. Then finally, Satan takes him upon a high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And so yet again, we have to look back to the garden and say, what exactly was lost? Well, Adam lost his place of having dominion over the earth when God said, go and, go and subdue the earth, right? He loses that. And so Satan is offering him back part of what he lost. But what else did Adam give away in the garden that I would argue is more important? He gave up perfect union and perfect fellowship with God. He gave up the relationship with God that meant that they could go for walks in the garden. He gave that up in exchange for hiding in shame in a bush in sin. And so Satan says, Jesus, tell you what, I'll give you back half of what you lost if you'll bow down and worship me. And what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't deny that Satan has dominion over the earth. In fact, three times Jesus is going to refer to Satan is the prince, or depending upon your Bible, or is the ruler of this world. Satan is the prince of the air. He's the small g god of this age. And Satan says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you back half of what you lost. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do it. I can't get right by doing wrong. Have you ever tried to do that? You tell a lie, and then you have to tell another lie to cover that lie, and then there's a bigger lie to cover the first two lies. You see people do this with money. They borrow money, and then they can't pay it back, so they go borrow more, and it just keeps spiraling. Or you do something you shouldn't do, and then you feel terrible about it, and then to feel good, you go do something else that you shouldn't do, and then you feel worse after that, and it just spirals. And Jesus is the ultimate, is the true man, says, I won't give up my relationship with God to get back my position of authority over the earth. 
And Jesus answers Satan. He says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Jesus says, is a true man, is a perfect human. We put our relationship with God before we put anything else. And He says, I will not bow down and worship you. I talked for a long time, lost my place in my notes. <laughs> so, um, Mark actually uh, closes his account of the temptation in the desert with Jesus being ministered to by animals and angels. And I, and I don't know how much more Adam that you can possibly get. And so this battle in the desert was never a fallen angel against God. This battle in the desert was always a fallen angel against a man. So, what does this mean for us? When we sin, when we make a mistake, when we miss the mark, when we live life below the line, there's normally some well-meaning person to come by and say, don't worry, you are only human, right? What I want to argue is, when you sin, and when you miss the mark, and when you're below the line, you're not human. Jesus teaches us how to be fully human. And perfection is not straight A's and having your shirt tucked in straight and brushing and flossing and edging your yard. Perfection is to be perfectly human in dependence upon God and in fellowship with God and in walking with God. And when we sin, we are not human. We are subhuman. Some of us are waiting until we die or until Jesus comes back to lean into and to step into this process of being fully human by being dependent upon God, by stepping into our own sanctification. Don't wait. Lean into what it means to be fully human now. And when sin causes us to hold on to anger and jealousy, and habits that are bad for us. Those aren't the real you. Those aren't the natural you. That's not the new you that God is calling out. And so today we think back to a baby in a manger, and we recognize the greatest gift the world has ever been given, and that is the gift of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And when we say yes to that gift, He gives you a spectacular gift that should blow our minds. He gives us the real you. The you that would have been born into the garden. Now it doesn't happen overnight. There's a whole other sermon that needs preached about this, about what it means to be sanctified and the process of sanctification. But your family needs more of the real you to show up. This church needs more of the real you growing in grace and in peace and in love to show up. This community needs more of the real you to be a witness to the light that is Jesus. Your spouse needs more of the sanctified real you to show up in your marriage. God's been, uh, Doug has been doing a series about uh, prepositions, and God is behind us, and God is beyond us, and before us, and under us, and for us, and it's been a great series. Today, Christmas Day, I don't have a preposition. God is us. 
God became flesh and became human and teaches us how to live as humans dependent upon God with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so maybe today you have never said yes to the greatest gift that has ever been given. We can get water in that baptistry. It takes about 40 minutes, and today it'll probably be cold. But if you've never said yes to that gift, we want you on Christmas Day to say yes to the greatest gift that has ever been given. Maybe you have said yes to that gift, and you're a Christian, and you realize you have not been living a sanctified, fully human, God-dependent life. And you want the prayers of the church to help you show up in your workplace and in your family and in your marriage as a sanctified, God-dependent human being. If you have needs of the church, come as we stand and sing.